So men's group last week, I mentioned to Jim that I was going to use the text he had just preached from on Sunday as my starting point. It won't be my ending point. But in Mark chapter 5 and verse 24, by the way, Jim covered much more than this in his message, but he stuck to Mark chapter 5. But we read, Jesus went with him, that's the ruler of the synagogue, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You can just imagine the expression on their faces. Are you crazy? Who touched you? Everybody touched you. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I just said to Micah, You know, I'd rather not be speaking when the pastor's here. It's just not my most comfortable setting. And then to touch on a passage that he's just finished preaching on is also a thing I'd rather not do. It's kind of interesting, though, that this event is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Just saw our cartoon this week. The teacher is standing before the class and says, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'd like to see you after class. Your reports are very similar. <laughs> so here we are looking at a passage that is related in Matthew and Luke and yet despite the fact that Mark is the shortest of those gospels of all the gospels despite the fact that Mark so often uses that word immediately or straightway in the King James Version this is the longest description of this event. There's more de detail given here than in the other two Gospels where it is mentioned. In Matthew, it's not even mentioned that Jesus said, who touched me? Just as he turned around and saw her, it said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now Luke mentions that he stopped and asked, but what Mark describes in 11 verses, Matthew covers in 3, and Luke covers in five. Well, six, actually. And as we discussed when the pastor was preaching from this passage, we have to remember that this was a big deal because this woman had been for 12 years ceremonial unclean. I was reading Leviticus chapter 15 where this is described, and it not talks about not just women but men who have a discharge and what has to happen for them to be cleansed. And it specifically says if a woman has a discharge of blood 
longer than her normal monthly cycle, she's unclean as long as that lasts. Now, if it's her normal cycle, she's unclean for seven days. But if it goes longer than that, something is wrong, and she's still unclean. And if someone touches the bed she lay on, the seat she sat on, etc., they're unclean till evening. And yet she was brave enough to reach out and just touch Jesus' garment, even though she knew that doing so would make him unclean. Wow. I hope he doesn't catch me. Because all I have to do is touch him and I'll be healed. That's pretty amazing faith. And yet maybe she knew that Jesus touched lepers and he didn't seem to care. Because touching a leper was definitely going to make you unclean. I actually found a website that's from a website called, it's called Bible Q, and apparently people ask all kinds of questions. And it talked about Jesus' methods of healing and how often he touched people to do so. There's a whole long list of healings that Jesus performed, and most of them Jesus touched the person to do so. Not always. One of those outstanding examples of where he didn't was the centurion servant. You don't have to come, Lord. All you have to do is say the word. And Jesus commended that man, that Gentile's faith, more than all the Jews that he spoke to on a regular basis. And yet, here's a woman who didn't even touch Jesus. She just touched his garment. As I thought about that, I was thinking about some events in my life. I told my wife when I began tonight I was going to embarrass her. She said, well, you always do when you preach anyway. (laughs) On March 6th, 1976, it was the National Basketball Championship of the National Christian College Athletic Association. My college was playing for the national championship. Great basketball game. One point difference all through the game. One team would score, the other team would score, and just kept kept on going. Great game. We lost by one point. But more importantly than that national championship was the fact that it was the first time this gorgeous redhead with green eyes went on a date with me. And so there we were in a gymnasium that was absolutely packed. And we didn't have any choice. I wasn't looking for a choice, frankly. I was kind of thankful. But we had to sit really, really close. I could not tell you who was sitting on my other side. But I knew for sure she was sitting next to me. And we kept touching elbows. Bear in mind that the college I went to did not allow any kind of public display of affection. And so for me to sit there beside Luann, touching elbows was pretty thrilling. As a matter of fact, later that night, when the game was over, we took a, a walk down to the pond 
It was the day before my birthday, and they had a surprise birthday party for me. It's the only time in 61 years I've ever been surprised at a surprise birthday party, and boy, did they surprise me. Matter of fact, last Wednesday night, we were sitting here side by side, and I was thinking about that as we were sitting beside each other, and our elbows kept touching. And I thought to myself, Next Monday night will be our 41st anniversary. And since we have three children, you might guess that we have gone beyond touching elbows, but it was still thrilling mm. to sit there and touch elbows and still, you know, not be distracted from what the pastor was saying, but I still was enjoying it. Just sitting next to my wife with our elbows touching. Touch is really, really important. And we'll discuss more about that in a little bit. But I have been thinking about this for some time. Think about man's interaction with God. Go back to Moses in the burning bush and what did God say? Take off your shoes, don't approach. The ground where you're standing is holy ground. What did Isaiah see when he saw God? High and lifted up. Woe is me, I'm a, a man of unclean lips. All through the Old Testament, as God interacted with man, Mount Sinai, anytime you can think of it, there was no close interaction. There was a recognition of the holiness of God in fire, in sound, just all kinds of things along those lines. And sometimes we forget that when Jesus came to earth, that changed. Has God changed? No, he is still a holy God. And he is still far beyond our capacity to understand. And we still are sinful creatures who need to express awe. And yet, Jesus came to earth, and you know what he did? He wore skin. He started touching people. I was reading an article, and by the way, if you, if you do a, a Google search on physical touch in New Testament times, you won't find much about Jesus' touch. Some really interesting articles out there. And then there's some other ones that are, it's like, it made me shake my head. But one blogger said, the pivotal event in the Apostle John's life was at the Last Supper. John chapter 13 and verse 21, Jesus has spoken at some length and it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now that statement is made in every one of the four Gospels. But what is described next is not. 
The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. Now let's consider what that means. If you've ever seen the painting of The Last Supper, I think it was Leonardo da Vinci that painted that. There's Jesus in the middle of the table, and there they all are sitting around him. And there's some story, whether it's true or not, that Judas' face was Leonardo da Vinci's face because he felt like he had betrayed Jesus himself. We could all probably say that. Mm. That's not what it was like. I don't know how they did this, but um, I believe it was Albert Barnes describes this in some detail, not about the Last Supper, but about Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in their desire to have the chief place in the upper room. And there was a chief place. And he described what the table was like, and I don't know if he's accurate or not, but it was pretty interesting reading about the different levels of the table. But the important thing is this. They didn't sit at chairs. They laid on little couches or mats. And they reclined on their left hand and eat with their right. And so they were kind of next to each other around the table. And Jesus would have been in the place of honor, which was the center of what he described as the middle table. John would have been next to him because the disciple whom Jesus loved was John the apostle. And he was literally reclining at the table close to Jesus. And some say that means he was able to touch him. In fact, as we keep on reading, Simon Peter motions to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. And what does John do? That disciple leaning back against Jesus Ask him of whom he was speaking. Lord, who is it? Now, if Jesus were to walk into the room today, how many of us would just go up and give him a bear hug? <laughs> Do you think Jesus would welcome that? I'm willing to risk it. <laughs> And so Jesus responds, he's not offended that John's invading his personal space. John's leaning against him, asking him a question. And in John chapter 21, the very end of the book, when Peter's been told what's going to be his fate, Peter, you know, he never could keep his mouth shut, could he? What about this one? And John again says, speaking of the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Jesus said, if I want him to stay until I come again, what is that to you? But he's not described as only the one whom Jesus loved, but also the one who reclined against him at that last supper. John thought it was worth repeating. This was that disciple, the one that Jesus loved and who was so close to him in the place of honor at that last supper. And so I think to myself again, what it must have been like 
to be in that room with that small group of people, one of whom leaves very shortly because Jesus dips the sop, and there's some question about that was, probably part of the Passover meal, gives it to Judas and says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. And Judas leaves. Interesting expression there. Jesus or Judas goes out to complete the betrayal of Christ. It says, and it was night. Judas leaves that illuminated room and goes out into the darkness. Just, I presume that's why John thought it was important to include just that little phrase. And it was night. But again, I think of myself being in that crowd surrounding Jesus and being just, you know, brushing against him. Or being in that upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus knows he's about to be crucified and gives some words of preparation and comfort. And John leans back against him, and I don't think that was the first time. What must it have been like to be there in those circumstances with Jesus and for Peter to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, them to recognize his station and still to act the way they did. It's interesting that one of the other accounts of the Last Supper all the disciples are saying to them, is, is it me? Am I the one who's going to betray you? And then immediately leads into a fight over which among them is the greatest. Wait a minute. I, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to betray you. Not, not me, Lord. And yet that leads into a discussion where Jesus has to say what it is to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Hmm. I'm thinking that if I sat there around that table and I saw John leaning close to the Lord, leaning against his bosom. By the way, did you ever stop to think about where that term bosom buddy comes from? John leans against him just because he can and because he's in that position, he's able to ask the question, who is it? I wonder how many times over the years... John thought about those events. He certainly remembered them clearly as he related them in his gospel. Jesus touching. Now again, I really hate to go not only where the pastor has been, but where he will be in the future. But once again, Mark really gives the best example of an event that's related in the Synoptic Gospels. Three times we read about people bringing children. In fact, in Luke 18, it says even infants to him that he might touch them or in Matthew that he might lay his hands on them. But Mark says they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and his, the disciples rebuked them. Why? Well, the rabbi is too important for children. The rabbi has better things to do 
than to be bothered with your brats. Your kids probably have sticky hands and dirty knees. If you've had children, you know about that, right? <laughs> but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. But here's the point that I want to make. Verse 16 says, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And again, I was thinking, as the years went by, how many of those children in Jesus' presence that day as he just swept them up and hugged them and blessed them. How many of them remembered that? How many of them said, I was there. I was one of those kids. Now, I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe we will meet those kids in heaven. Yeah, I was one of those kids that Jesus hugged. I was one of those kids that Jesus blessed. I was one of those kids... That even when the disciples wanted to turn me away, Jesus said, don't stop them. Every one of the Synoptic Gospels makes that same statement. Let the children come to me. Because the kingdom of God is made up of people who accept that kingdom like a child. And Jesus touched them. Jesus could be bothered with those little kids, even infants. Last night, my two granddaughters came to give me a hug and a kiss, as they usually do when I'm home at their bedtime. And so Jubilee came up, and I picked her up, and she's getting a little reluctant to kiss me. She's getting a little reluctant to kiss anybody. And I don't know why that is. Casey, on Saturday, I don't know how many times she came over and said, I want to give you a hug and a kiss. I'm sitting there in my recliner. She comes and wants to give me a hug and a kiss. And, you know, I just can't stand it when she does that. Yeah, right. But she came up after her sister and wanted me to pick her up. And she gave me a big hug, and then she gave me a kiss. There is just something so refreshing about a child giving you a big hug. Am I right, youngs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. My older grandson is not so excited about doing that anymore. My younger grandson, he still wants to give us a hug and a kiss before he goes to bed. But before long... He's approaching those teen years, too. He probably won't want to do that. It won't be cool to give his poppy a hug and a kiss. My granddaughters are still giving me my fix every night. And there was Jesus who did the same thing for kids that were not his own. He never had a child of his body. But he had many, many children. And I wonder... What kind of thoughts went through his mind? Except that we're told, don't hinder them, because to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
and he took them in his arms and blessed them. Now, what exactly does that mean for us? I think number one is we need to remember that there's another aspect of Jesus that sometimes we forget. We worship the Most High God. And yet that Most High God is Emmanuel. God with us. God manifest in the flesh. And still today Jesus Christ bears that human body. Oh yes, it's glorified. But he still has that body after the resurrection. It still had scars. You ever think how amazing it is that of all the inhabitants of heaven, the only body that will have scars will be our Lord's body? I have seen a tie that has Jesus meeting someone at the gates of heaven. Not much there except a kind of a nebulous blue background and there's Jesus hugging someone who's coming into his presence. And I would like it a lot better if Jesus didn't look so tall and Caucasian. Because <laughs> Jesus was not tall and Caucasian. I don't know how tall he was, but he was a Jew. All the movies I've ever seen about Jesus, he was pretty much a white boy. Always has long hair and a beard. I don't know if that's what he wore or not. Except for one movie that I saw called Risen. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a very interesting story about well, the events after the resurrection. And there are some elements in there that are kind of a stretch because there's a, a Roman soldier who's tasked to find a body because Jesus has disappeared from the tomb. Find me a body, says Pilate. Anybody. We have to show that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and so that's his job. As he goes to seek the body of Jesus, or failing that, anybody, he finds the disciples. And they don't really want to talk to a Roman soldier, but as he goes into the place where they are at some point, there's Jesus. Jesus looked Jewish in this movie. He looked short. The Roman soldier was tall, good-looking. Jesus, he was short and smiled. And in the scenes where he appears, there he is, reaching out and putting his arms around the shoulders of his disciples, greeting them. And this is after the resurrection. Every scene, he has a big smile on his face. And I think to myself, that's probably a lot more accurate to the events described in the scriptures than all of these movies where Jesus is, you know, looking a lot like us white folks. And how often do you see a movie where Jesus is just reaching out and grabbing somebody and hugging them? And I'm pretty sure that's what he did. What did he say to Thomas? Thomas said, if I, don't, if I don't see the marks, if I don't see the scars, I'm not going to believe he's risen from the dead. And then Jesus appears and says, hey, Thomas, come on. 
put your finger in the hole, put your hand in my side. And Thomas didn't even have to touch him. He immediately fell to his knees, my Lord and my God. Now there is the attitude we must have, and yet there's Jesus in their midst, greeting them, paying attention to them, and I have to believe, touching them. What's it going to be like for us when we get to heaven? I think that we are going to be greeted with a hug. There's a song called I Can Only Imagine where the singer says, when I get to heaven, what will it be like? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or will all of you be still? Will I fall to my knees? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me that all of those reactions take place in Jesus' presence for the first time. But there is, nonetheless, a reaction that we ought to have as well. I had never heard of this lady before. Apparently she was uh, in a church in Nashville. I don't know which one. But she was the leader of a women's group that had normally about 60 people. For five years, she led this women's group at this church. And at some point, a couple of years after they had started meeting, she said, you know what we ought to do? Let's just get in a big circle. You taking notes, Micah? Let's get in a big circle. Turn to the person on your right and start massaging their shoulders. Okay, we're going to do that next Tuesday? <laughs> so she describes the event as extremely meaningful. The women, women are saying, oh, that feels wonderful. And comments along those lines, except for one woman who's clearly uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, she was so uncomfortable that she started coming late just so she'd miss that. She didn't like that, that part of the meeting. Apparently the content was sufficient that she wanted to be there for the study conversation, but she didn't like that part. In fact, she finally made her way and asked for an appointment to meet with the woman leading the study. The blogger said, in the interest of her anonymity, I will not give her name, but in the interest of humor, we'll call her Frigita. F-R-I-D-G-E-E-T-A. And she came and she said, I am just not comfortable with a bunch of women groping each other before we start our study. She said, normally I would have an immediate rejoinder, but this time I stopped and thought about what I was going to say. And by the way, I read some of this lady's other articles. She is quite humorous. And so, after she thought about it a little bit, she said, maybe it would help if I explained the method between that comes across as madness to you. I told Fridge that I meet women on a weekly basis who receive very little, if any, healthy physical touch. 
some of the manicured, perfectly coiffed women who occupy pews every Sunday in our congregation have been victims of physical abuse by their husbands or sexual abuse by someone they knew when they were growing up. For most of us, rubbing a friend's shoulders is no big, big deal, not even a blip on our daily radar. However, for a woman whose private experience with physicality has been a closed fist or an unwanted violation, having someone safe touch her with a hand that needs her well can be deeply comforting. Even healing, like offering a sip of cool water to someone who's dying of thirst in the desert. Furthermore, I told Phrygi, God wired us for touch. Medical studies have proven that physical touch boosts our immune system, improves our psychological states, and can literally save lives. This was fascinating to me. Historical documents reveal a crude and cruel 13th century study in which Frederick II, the reigning German emperor, wondered what language children would speak if they were never spoken to. So he selected several newborns in an orphanage and instructed nurses to feed them but not to talk to them or touch them. Every single one of those babies died. Dr. Fritz Talbot conducted a more scientific study regarding the effects of touch on babies in the 1940s and established a conclusive connection between touch and an infant's ability to thrive. As an aside, leaving her blog for a moment, I was fascinated by reading an account of an American who was on a missions trip to Russia, and she went into an orphanage. There was a very large room full of cribs with not a sound being uttered by any of the babies laying in those cribs. She said, how do you get them all to stay so quiet? The response was, after two or three days, they learn that no one is coming to respond. And so they stop crying. And that's not because people didn't want these children to be healthy. It's because they didn't have the resources to respond to all of these babies in this orphanage. They don't cry when they go to bed because they know no, no one is going to respond. Is that tragic? Is that horrendous? How do you survive that into adulthood? I concluded my defense by carefully explaining that the Gospels describe Jesus himself as a toucher. There are multiple cases in which our Savior reached out and embraced people when a simple nod or quick, quick handshake would have... I don't know that Jews ever shook hands, but you get the idea. A quick handshake would have sufficed. He intentionally used tactile methods hugging a leper, placing his hands on a crippled woman's spine in most of his healing miracles. She relates the account we just read, which again I chose from Mark because it's the most complete account. And so the disciples thought they were too messy and too much of a hassle to interact with the Messiah, and the Lamb of God beckoned them to pile onto his lap. I don't know if that's what that passage says, but you can imagine Jesus doing that. Come on up here. Sit on my knee. And the defining moment of the Apostle John's life was when Jesus allowed him to lean back against his chest during the last meal they shared together. 
In short, I told my skittish friend, our savior was a master masseur. Okay. Might be pushing a little bit. And it might not. Can you imagine Jesus reaching over to the disciples as they sat around or lay around a table, reclining around a table, and just reaching out and giving them a little massage of their shoulders? Let's remember that just prior to that event where Jesus made that statement, what had Jesus done? Yeah, he washed their feet. Nobody was willing to take that job because that was the job of a slave or a servant. And yet Jesus, and let's again consider, it's kind of interesting to consider this when you think about the woman washing Jesus' feet. There they are laying around this table with their heads toward the table and their feet away from it. And Jesus went around where their feet were and washed each one of them. Now, I was reading, I think it was the uh, uh, teaching commentary, and it said, there are still some denominations that practice this on a regular basis. Maybe you should try it some Sunday. Either have the leadership of the church wash everyone's feet or have everyone in the congregation wash each other's feet. What do you think? I see a lot of shaking heads. No, not excited about that, huh? <laughs> there are some denominations that believe that is another ordinance instituted by Christ. I don't agree with that, but it's certainly a great example of servant leadership, is it not? And imagine this woman coming up who according to Albert Barnes, would not have been welcome in a room where the men were eating because women didn't get to eat with the men. Yet she comes to the outside of that circle and there's Jesus lying there with his feet to the outside, no sandals on, and nobody has watched his feet because the Pharisee who was hosting him wasn't about to give him that kind of honor. And there she comes and she weeps and washes his feet and dries them with her hair. Wow. Jesus said she'll always be remembered. So there we are, looking at Jesus' example, probably one we've never considered in depth all through the Gospels. This is a Savior who is willing to touch us. And we ought to be willing to do the same. I don't have time to go there, but it was pretty interesting reading some of the articles. Uh, there was one great article by John Piper who was asked by a pastor, what's, what's the appropriate way for me to greet women in my church? And he had some pretty wise counsel. Talked about different kinds of touching being wise in responding to touching. But he said one of the ladies in his church made a statement very similar to what our previous blogger said. 
She said, there are women in our congregation who have not been touched in 10 years. No one has hugged them. And I thought to myself, could that be true in our little congregation? I promise I am very cautious about hugging women other than my wife. And I'm very eager to hug her. But I'm cautious. And John Piper made the comment, we must be sure never to uh, interact with a woman in a threatening or sexually interested way. But the woman in his church said, these women absolutely need a holy hug from a holy male. Do we have that person? And is it only women? Now, I'm not saying that as some of your friends have practiced, that we need to start coming in here and greeting each other with a holy kiss. I think I'd have a problem with that. So, Jeff, back off. (laughs) Nonetheless, if Jesus could do it, and if we're to follow his example, perhaps we should be a little bit more demonstrative. Because our ministry is to encourage and lift up and comfort one another. That's what Jesus did. And you know what I don't find in the Gospels? This was kind of interesting. So this woman that we talked about first came and touched his garment and Jesus did not immediately pick her up and take her in his arms. In that culture it would have been highly inappropriate. We don't read any instance of Jesus hugging a woman. He touched them to heal them, but he didn't hug them. And yet, there's John lying back in his bosom. There are the children gathered into his arms. There are all the people he touched to heal them. And what could we do along those lines to follow Jesus' example? I am looking forward to getting that hug from my Savior when I enter his presence. I don't know if I'll be able to stand there without falling at his feet in complete and utter worship and thanks for what he has done for me. But I think as eternity passes there will be times when I'll be able to get a hug from Jesus. And so next time Micah tests us saying the men's group is Tuesday night and we're going to be studying this passage and we're going to have a little shoulder massage session before we begin. Just saying, Micah. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. Nonetheless, I promise you there are people with whom we interact who really need a hug. They need it from Jesus far more than they need it from us. But it may be that they'll see Jesus in us as we follow his example.